This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Uh, my name is Craig, and I'm one of the pastors here. And so if we haven't met, uh, thanks for being here. Good to have you with us. Uh, we're, let me tell you what's coming up for the fall. Um, we are going to do a few weeks on a series starting today uh, called The Generous Life. And so I'm going to talk about uh, generosity for the next few weeks. And then after that, we are going to do a, f- a four-week study uh, through sections of Psalm 119. It's the longest psalm in the Bible, and it's about the Scripture. It's about the Word of God. So we're going to do four weeks on that. And then after that, we will, in October, jump into uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7. through 7. I'm just going to teach through that into the spring, which will take us up to Easter. So that's a little bit of what's coming up uh, in the next number of weeks. Now, today I'm going to talk about generosity. Uh, if you're a guest, this, uh, we don't have a fundraising campaign. There's not an offering at the end of the service or something like that. Uh, so I want to alleviate any fears you may have that, the, that this topic is uh, specifically tied to something happening in the church right now. Um, but I, I do want to recommend a couple of resources to you here. Uh, when I talk about generosity, as you'll see today and in the coming weeks, um, I'm going to talk about generosity as, a, as an orientation of life, um, a subset of which is generosity with our finances, but it's much broader than that. Uh, however, I do have a couple of books at the Resource Center. We have a couple of books there that I want to let you know about that we got for this series that have to do specifically about our resources or our finances. Sometimes it's hard to find good uh, biblical material on that, but there's a couple of very good resources out there. The first one is a really new book. I just read it. It's by Paul Tripp, and it is called uh, Redeeming Money. Uh, that's the cover of the book. Uh, this is a strap and not an X over the dollar sign. You can't see that in the back. If you're in the front, you can see see the design. But uh, I've not really read a book like this before. This book is uh, largely geared towards the orientation of our heart and how we relate to money as an idol or as a resource. Um, and so it is a uh, it's a fascinating book that deals much much more uh, with getting our heart our heartbeat after the heartbeat of the gospel and understanding uh, how we are to use our resources. As a matter of fact, the sermon I'm preaching today. Um, I just want to make this very clear at the beginning. I got the whole idea from a chapter of this book where he talks about generosity and how that generosity is essentially the storyline of the Bible. So I'm going to be looking at the storyline of the Bible and and generosity today, uh, which I first got that idea from, from that book. So this is a very good book. The second book is a practical book. It's a very different book. It's called The Money Challenge by Art Rayner. And it's kind of a story, uh, but it is written in very practical terms about budgeting, saving, um, how to view your giving, how to view your, uh, the, sort of the management of your resources. So this is much more hands-on. Uh, they're both out there. Uh, if you wanted to read one of them, read whatever, whatever of those descriptions suits you best. If you buy them both, read the trip book first, because a lot of folks just go to practical stuff without having a reorientation to the heart. And uh, then we do things perhaps not for the right reasons or perhaps we set patterns that don't really last because we're not, we're not changed in our orientation to things by the grace of God. So those will both be out there for you at the resources uh, shelves over here if you would like to uh, pick them up. So let me pray and uh, we'll jump in. Father, thank you for your scripture. Thank you for your word which always speaks truth to us. 
um, and is always reliable. And we pray today that as we look at a, a variety of scriptures, that you would show us yourself. We pray that uh, false conceptions of you would be broken down and that we would be gripped by a true perception of you as the generous God who provides by your grace uh, for us in ways far beyond we deserve what we deserve and far beyond what we even recognize. So we, we pray today that you would speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me start by just talking about the word generosity and the theme generosity. I recently read a book. It's not a Christian book. Actually, it quotes all kinds of uh, it quotes the Bible, but it quotes all kinds of religious books. It's not a Christian book, but it's written by uh, a couple of social scientists, and it's called The Paradox of Generosity. It's a, it's a study of social science on the study of happiness and, um, and, and done through interviewing and observing uh, in some detail people's lives and then uh, rating their well-being. Uh, their happiness in life, and it, it just makes the bulletproof case, which the Bible makes, but social science confirms that the happiest people are the most generous people, that people who are generous tend to be happier, people who are stingy tend to be less happy in life, and it, it, it pre- pre- presents that from a, really a non-religious sort of a view, but I thought there was a paragraph that was very helpful to talk about what is generosity, um, so I'm going to start with this. The rest of what I'm going to talk about is the Bible, but I'm going to start with the social scientists. And this is what they said. For the purpose, for our purpose, by generosity, we mean the virtue of giving good things to others freely and abundantly. Generosity, thus conceived, is a learned character trait that involves both attitudes and actions, entailing as a virtue both a disposition to give liberally and an actual practice of giving liberally. Generosity is not a random idea or a haphazard behavior, but rather, in its mature form at least, a basic personal moral orientation to life. Generosity also involves giving to others not simply anything in abundance, but rather giving those things that are beneficial to others. Generosity always intends to enhance the true well-being of those to whom something is being given. And for this reason, we think generosity is ultimately an expression of love. What exactly generous people can give varies. Money, possessions, time, attention, aid, encouragement, emotional availability, and more. I thought that was such a helpful description of generosity that, that, that real generosity is not a random act, but it is an orientation of life that seeks to give liberally and generously, uh, giving good things to others to, uh, uh, to meet the needs, something, things, that, things that are beneficial to others, that it's really uh, an expression of loving someone else, and that generosity is not just financial. It is always tangible, though. So it may be giving attention to someone. That's tangible. It may be uh, giving your time. It may be blocking out 
a couple of hours that you will never have back in your life, in your schedule, to devote to someone else. It might be using your talents or your abilities to help someone else. It might be taking time to encourage someone. Uh, It might be being available for a practical need. So it is an orientation of life that has to do with being generous, being uh, uh, liberally giving what we have to others. Now, that, that was just a horizontal description. What I want to talk about today is ultimately a vertical look and description because when we talk about any virtue like this as Christians, we don't start with us. We start with God. We start with God. And we see in the Scripture that when we look at God that the story of the Bible is really a story of generosity. It's a narrative that describes the actions of a generous God giving liberally and graciously to his people. In fact, generosity is a lens through which we can really trace the storyline of the Bible, which is what I want to do this morning. And it starts with creation. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but creation is really uh, the reflection of the generous heart of God. So in Genesis 1, for instance, Genesis 1 begins this, the Bible, whole Bible begins this way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And so the rest of the chapter spells out uh, God speaking things uh, into existence, creating something out of nothing, uh, all of creation, culminating with the uh, sort of the apex of creation, which is the creation of humanity. He creates uh, man, male, and fe- creates humans, male and female, um, and describes what God does. That the, the idea is to communicate that all that exists exists because God uh, caused it to exist. God created it. So it's a picture of the power of God. It's a picture of uh, the, 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 that, uh, that says God is the source of all creation. Now, while Genesis 1 sort of describes that and tells us just God spoke it and it was good, does say it was good, the Psalms describe, in one Psalm in particular, particular, a little bit about the purpose of creation. So when we look at the creation, how are we to be um, affected by it? So Psalm 19, which is a Psalm of David, says this, the heavens declare That's a speaking word. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. And so while in Genesis 1 we sort of get a description of God as the source of creation, the creator, in Psalm 19 we get through poetic language a bit, of a description of the function of creation, at least one function of creation, it says that the sky is proclaiming something. When you look to the sky, there is speech that is pouring forth. In other words, every glorious sunset is talking to anyone who will listen. Every glorious sunset, the the expanse of the stars in the sky are speaking to anyone who will listen. Well, what are they saying? 
What is the sky, the sunset, for instance? What is it saying to us? Well, it's saying that the beauty of God is beyond description. It's saying how generous is God to display such grandeur for us to be able to take in, for us to be able to experience. My house, where there's a window on the side of our house that uh, we can look through and, and faces west, and until there's some future construction, there's nothing that blocks our view of the sunset. So frequently I'm able to look out, and some nights um, the, the colors, the, the hue of the sky, the way it is lit up, is it's really breathtaking. It's transcendent to see a beautiful sunset like that. It's transcendent in the sense of you're taken beyond yourself and you feel very small and you're aware there's a very great God. It's God now, how does that show gen- God's generosity? It shows gen- God's generosity because he didn't have to create a sky like that. He didn't have to create the sun and the sunset to appear like that. Do you think about that? God could have just said, okay, it's daytime, and at 7.30, lights out. And he could have flipped a switch, and everything goes dark. God could have done that. He could have just said, you know, this is the way creation works. I spoke light, and then there was dark one day, and it was good, you know, Genesis 1. But we don't get that. We get this, you don't really need the beauty of a sunset. It's not functional, is it? I mean, it doesn't really accomplish anything for us. But it is shows the generous gift of God. Now, I'm just kind of harping on a sunset because the psalmist picks the sky and says the skies are speaking to us if we will hear something about the God who created them. But in the book that, we, that I recommended by Paul Tripp, Redeeming Money, he talks about the generosity of creation and how we see God's generosity not just in the sunset but in all that he has created. He writes the following, Whether it is the beauty of a sunset the design of animals of every color, shape, and size, the beauty of a single flower, the glory of a majestic tree, the patter of rain on the leaves of a tree, the individual timber of each person's voice, the smell and taste of a thousand different spices the sweet delicacy of a human kiss, or the magnitude of a mountain range. We have been blessed way beyond our ability to recount. And not only did God create a magnificently interesting, intriguing, beautiful world, but he designed it to be our dwelling place, and he created us with just the right collection of senses to take it in and enjoy it. Creation is a lavishly generous gift. The creation is a gift, and our creation that God gave us senses to experience and enjoy creation, which reflects the Creator so that we can experience the creation and then turn to Him in worship and gratitude is glorious. Do you stop and take that in? Or do you, on any kind of regular basis, Thank God for what you see in creation, what you smell in creation, what you hear that he, that he has created. Do you stop? My, my, con, my concern for myself uh, and for many of us is that we just live sort of a harried, busy existence. 
We don't slow down to taste and enjoy a good meal. We just drive through and grab it and eat it rushing to the next appointment. That we don't often see the glory of the sunset because we're rushing home, shuttling from soccer practice quickly to get our homework done before bedtime. That we're just moving at such a pace that we never slow down to say, God, You are glorious and great, and you are generous in all that you have created. Even slowing down to enjoy the gift of taste. Have you thought about that? God didn't have to give us a taste. God didn't have to create all the varieties of things to taste that he has created. He could have made us very functional uh, instead of making eating and drinking a gift to enjoy. I was thinking about an old movie from the early 90s. How many of you have ever seen the movie, What About Bob? It's a very old movie. Okay, a lot of you have. The first service, I shared this, and I got the feeling like nobody had ever seen it before, so it was, it was that awkward moment. But, um, but now I'm among friends. You saw it. So No, those are friends in the first service too, but um, they just have poor taste in movies. So anyway, so what about Bob? I won't go into it. Uh, Bill Murray plays uh, Bob Wiley. Uh, and uh, in it, he is, uh, he is supposed to be mentally imbalanced in, this, in the movie, and yet he is stalking and ulti- ultimately ends up vacationing with his therapist. And the kind of the point of the movie is the therapist turns out to be far more imbalanced than uh, Bob does. But at, at, at dinner one night when they're on the porch and they're having fried chicken and salad and uh, maybe potatoes or something, and corn on the cob. Bob is eating corn on the cob while everyone else at the table is silent. He's an uninvited guest. He's not even supposed to be there. But he is the most, in one way, obnoxious eater ever. And so I really can't do it justice. You can Google it after church. But uh, at the table, Bob Wiley is enjoying this ear of corn, and he's just sort of going, mmm, mmm. He's just moaning moaning so loud with enjoyment over this corn that the whole, the whole family is just staring at him. It's way too loud. It's way too expressive. And he's just saying to uh, Dr. Marvin's wife, uh, Faye, this is scrumptious. Is it hand-shucked? This is incredible. You know, he's just blown away by the flavor of this corn. And I thought, you know, while Bob overdid it, the reality is that many of us underdo it and just sort of wolf down a meal and never stop to consider Wow, the glory of the flavor of steak. The glory, and I don't apologize to those who don't eat meat, but uh, you don't know what you're missing. But the glory of the gift of taste, of sight, of sound. Are we too busy and distracted to even say, God, you are generous. You didn't have to provide any of that, and you provide that to believer and unbeliever alike. Well, after Adam and Eve rebel against God in chapter 3 of Genesis From that point, we see God began a plan uh, of redemption, a generous plan of redemption, and a significant milestone, really starting place in that, is him coming to a man named Abram, who's later renamed Abraham. But he comes to him, and he makes a covenant with him. So we start with creation. We see the generosity of God. Then, as we're just running down the storyline of the Bible, in covenant, we see the generosity of God. Covenant is a promise where God binds himself to do something, Uh, committing uh, himself. And so he does this with Abram. In Genesis 12, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country 
and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so once, once humanity falls in sin and rebels against God, we're judged for that and we're separated from God's presence. But God uh, comes after us in love and he does that by forming a people and he does that by choosing a guy named Abram. Abram is not leaning towards God. Abram is not a faithful God worshiper. The Bible tells us that Abram is an idolater. He likely worships multiple gods and the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, is not one of them. Um, based on where he lived, he may have been a moon worshiper because he lived in the capital of moon worship. But whatever, he's an idolater. And God comes to him and freely by God's generous grace says, I am going to make you, you're a childless couple. You're, Abraham, you and your wife are a childless couple, but I'm going to give you children and you're going to be a nation and I'm going to give you a land. And here's the ultimate blessing. All the nations of the world are going to be blessed through you. That is through your line, through your lineage will come the, the Savior, Jesus Christ, who will rescue all who will believe in him. Now, Abraham doesn't get all that at the time, but that's the promise that I will bless the nation through you. I will protect you. Those who bless you will be blessed. Those who curse you will be cursed. And the amazing thing about this section is it has nothing to do with Abram. He is not elevated as godly, as wise, as seeking the Lord, as nation builder, uh, or anything like that. God comes to him and says, I will bless you. God takes the initiative. God moves toward him. God makes a promise to him that God will uphold even when Abram and his people don't uphold it. As a matter of fact, much of Genesis is showing how God fulfills his promise through unpromising characters. So Abraham's, he's a bit sketchy. I mean, when you read the story of Abraham, he, he, he risks his wife's uh, safety and maybe life, at least her safety, for his uh, own selfish purposes. Uh, his son, he has a son named Isaac. He even has a son named Jacob. And Jacob, uh, he's a, an absolute scoundrel. He's a deceiver. And yet God works through him. And the whole, the whole story is the statement that, that the, the covenant reveals that God is generous and God is gracious even when his, even when his people fail. It's a sign of generosity. God doesn't come to him and say, okay, you do your part, I'll do my part. If you do your part, I'll rescue you. If you're holy enough and good enough, I'll make a nation out of you. If you guys never fail, I'll make a nation and you'll be my people. That's not what he does. They do fail and they remain his people because God is faithful. The covenant is about God's generosity, not about man's worthiness. Uh, if you are uh, familiar with the story, you know how that goes. And so what ultimately happens a few generations later, a number of generations later, they end up, uh, God's people begin to grow and they end up enslaved in Egypt. And they multiply in Egypt. They are slave labor for Pharaoh, the most powerful nation in the world, most powerful leader in the world. And um, this happens for generations. They lose their freedom under the power of Egypt. But they cry out to God, God hears them, and he comes and again generously delivers them. He delivers them from their captors. He brings uh, plagues against Egypt, and ultimately uh, Pharaoh gives up 
and lets God's people go to worship him, ultimately to let them go to what will be their promised land. Because he had promised Abram that he would give him a land, and so he's going to fulfill that promise. He delivers his, these slaves through the Red Sea with the Egyptian army chasing them. He brings them into the land that he had promised with Abraham, and he cares for them in a generous way. He does for them, and this is a key point of generosity, he does for them what they could not do for themselves. They could never free themselves. God does for them what they could not do. That's his generosity and his grace to them. When they get, uh, you know, out of Egypt, across the sea, he gives them water to drink from a rock. He miraculously provides food for them daily. They don't have to go and hunt and gather. He provides uh, for them manna uh, in the desert, to, in the wilderness to eat before they enter the promised land. And then he does something for them very shortly after they're freed. He does something for them that is a generous gift that we often don't think of as a generous gift. He gives them his law. These are people who for generations have been in slavery. They've never ruled themselves. They never had the freedom to make their own choices. They've never had the freedom to worship God freely, to uh, sort of have a, uh, a, a gathered form of worship. They could worship him in their heart, but they never, never gather as a people in worship. So they haven't lived under God's rules. And God gives them a law, which is so kind, because it shows them how to relate to him, how to worship him. It shows them how to relate to one another. It shows them how to relate to the nations. And so for a people who have not governed themselves, what could be greater than God saying, here is how you should live, and his law reveals what he's like. So he reveals himself through his word, through his law. He reveals his character to them. Uh, which is a wonderful gift. He doesn't just free them and say, figure it out on your own. Well, what they quickly find is that they are incapable of keeping God's law. And, And the law becomes, it acts like a mirror, which when they look into it, they see their own sin and their own failure. Now, that's a gift as well. We often speak of the law Uh, as Christians, sometimes negatively, like the law is bad. But the law in the Bible is always presented as something good. The law is bad if you try to obey the law and make yourself right with God through your obedience to the law. In that case, it is bad. It's a bad use of the law. But the law is not made for you to attain your own salvation through your obedience. One of the emphases of the law is the mirror function where it shows us how we don't measure up. It shows us our sins and it shows us our failure. But the law also showed us how to be forgiven for sin and failure. Because in the law, God not only prescribed obedience... Uh, which we all fail in, but he also prescribed a means of forgiveness. That is, that God would take an animal, and you could take one of your animals, and he would count your sins to the animal, and the animal would be slaughtered, and that the animal would uh, would pay for, for your sins. It was a picture of substitution. I mean, how generous is this? God doesn't say, you sin, and so I'm striking you down. God says, you sinned, you disobeyed my law, but there's a means of forgiveness. And that is sin must be paid, paid for, but because there's a substitute, you don't have to pay for your sin. An animal will die, which will represent, uh, which will represent uh, payment for sin. So the law is a generous gift that shows us that we are in trouble. It shows us we are in trouble. The law functions uh, something like a doctor coming and giving you a diagnosis, a bad diagnosis, a terminal diagnosis. 
but like a good doctor, one who shoots straight with you without perhaps deceiving you and, hey, you're fine, you're good. That would be very unloving. But saying, no, you have something and it is terminal and only a miracle will save your life. So the law gives us a diagnosis that we are spiritually dead, we are unholy, we are in opposition to God. The law gives us a sacrificial system which points to that miracle, that coming miracle, that coming cure, which is Jesus Christ. It all points to Jesus who will atone for our sins, that all of the animal sacrifices in the um, And the ritual law and the ceremonial law of the Old Testament point to Christ, who is the sacrifice for us. And I'm skipping over all the kings, the exile, all that in the Old Testament. But throughout the Old Covenant life together, through the covenant, God is faithful, and it's all moving towards the coming of Christ. So there is creation, there is our fall, there is covenant, God's covenant with us. And then there is the incarnation. The incarnation is a big kind of theological word. It, it, just means, um, it just means God becoming human. That's what it means. The incarnation is God becoming human. And we see God's generosity on display at Christmas. It's really appropriate that Christmas would be a time that the response of people would be generosity, perhaps the most generous time of the year. That, that's really an appropriate response, even if people don't connect it, even if we often don't connect our generosity to God's generosity. It's a very appropriate response. God has become man. To, that is meant to change us so that we in turn are generous with others because he was generous with us. Generosity is not only, you know, providing for something for someone that can't provide for themselves, but it's also providing something at a cost, And that's the ultimate generosity. And in the incarnation, there is a tremendous cost because Jesus leaves the glory of heaven, the environment of blazing holiness, pure righteousness, um, perfect joy, nothing impure, nothing harmful, nothing dark, nothing evil. He leaves that environment and comes into our darkness, our brokenness, our humanity. He actually takes on our humanity so that those who have rebelled against God can have rescue from their rebellion. It's an amazing, amazing picture of, the, of God condescending to us because the, the one through whom everything was created, we learned in Colossians that through Christ, everything came into being that, is in, is, that exists. So through the one who created all things, he becomes a human And he is laid as a baby, a vulnerable baby, in a feeding trough, born to a nondescript couple in a nondescript town. And it's a a picture of the generosity of God that it cost him to send his son and it cost Jesus to come to take on our humanity. And when you think about Jesus and his life, he is... Well, we could say he is generosity incarnate. That is, he embodies generosity. What does he do when he comes? He moves towards the marginalized. Throughout the Gospels, we get this testimony that he's moving to outsiders, that he is, he's generously giving himself to those in need. He cares and loves the poor. He welcomes women and children who were often overlooked in that society, children to be sure, were completely overlooked, to be seen and not heard, and yet he welcomes them. And in many ways, women as well. And yet Jesus comes and he gives dignity 
and honor to women. He's actually supported uh, in some part financially by a group of women. He teaches women and treats them like disciples in a culture. Think about um, Mary at his feet learning. That was the posture of a disciple which uh, most of the rabbis would not have a female disciple following them. That was for males. And yet he is breaking down cultural barriers and welcoming the overlooked, instilling the appropriate creational dignity that men and women are both created in the image of God. He shows compassion to the outcasts. The lepers were banned and he heals them. Uh, he, He has meals with prostitutes and tax collectors. Tax collectors are despised. They are traitors to their people. They are greedy and rich, and he, he befriends them. He heals the sick. He delivers those suffering with demonic oppression, people in the grip of Satan who have spirits affecting them. He casts those spirits out and frees people who are... Um, enslaved to demonic powers, even raises the dead in a couple of instances of his ministry. He gives himself constantly. Jesus is God and he's also fully human. And so you see at some points where he just gives and generously pours out to the point of human exhaustion. At one point he's so exhausted that he's on a boat, an open boat, in the midst of a storm, a a storm that could kill those on the boat, and he's just sleeping right through it. He's so physically depleted because he is generosity incarnate. He came to give of himself, to reach the outsider, to care for the marginalized, to give those, provide for those who cannot provide for themselves, and he ultimately does that for all of us who will believe by laying down his very life. He comes to give his life. He comes to serve us. In Mark 10, there's an incredible statement that says this, Jesus didn't come to be served, but he came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That the God of the universe would come and serve us is a thought that's beyond comprehension. Now, you may believe that, or you may disbelieve that, but here's something that I don't think you can argue with, Believe if you, if you disbelieve that. Here's something I don't think you can argue with. That is an unprecedented idea. No religion claims that the creator of everything came to serve the creation. He serves people. He washes dirty feet. And he ultimately is a servant that lays down his life, gives himself, humbles himself, even to the point of death, death on a cross. That the entire picture of the Christian faith is that God himself comes to serve creation, those who have sinned against him. He comes to turn his enemies into his friends. That the God over all who deserves all of our worship and all of our allegiance and all of our lives, when we failed to give that, any of that to him, he came taking the posture of a servant, taking a lowly posture and dying in our place. You know, we hear that image from the Old Testament. He is the Lamb of God. New Testament says that. He is the Lamb of God. 
And we can, sort of, sort of, we can sort of think, isn't that sweet? Lambs are, you know, you ever seen a lamb? They're kind of cuddly and the shepherds. It, that's not the picture, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, sweet Jesus. That's not the picture of the lamb. A lamb is an animal that is slaughtered for sinners. That's the picture. A lamb is, a, uh, is an animal whose throat is slit and dies an agonizing death so that the worshiper can have his or her sins forgiven by the death of an animal. That's what God says Jesus is. Jesus is the Lamb of God. He is the one who comes and dies an excruciating death, the innocent dying for the guilty, the one who spoke everything into existence coming and dying for that rebellious creation. That is, uh, that is an idea that, that has never been claimed by any deity before or since as far as I'm aware. That is generosity. There is no, the Bible says there's no greater love than what I just described. And I think it would not be stretching it to say there's no greater generosity. Show, can you even imagine a greater generosity than God doing that for us? Well, he not only dies, but uh, he not only becomes human, but he dies, as I said, and he's raised. So the incarnation, I didn't give you the fourth one, the cross and resurrection. So there's the creation, the covenant. There's a creation, we fall. Then he makes a covenant, then the incarnation, then the cross and resurrection. That's what I've been talking about here. I got ahead of myself. But it's in the cross and resurrection that we most see God's generosity. Paul Tripp, in the book I referred to earlier, makes a great statement. He says, the biblical story is a generosity story. No words capture the essence of this story better than these. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's generosity. That's the storyline of the Bible. That's the, that's the peak of the Bible is that God loves and so he gives. And he gives what's most precious and what's most valuable to those who can never help themselves. He gives his own son who comes to die in our place. The one who received the judgment that we were due. Listen, Jesus didn't die as a martyr. Like, he just didn't die for a good cause. A lot of people have been martyred for causes. He doesn't just die for a cause. He dies as a substitute. He dies in our place. And that's been the whole direction of the Bible. From Genesis 3, where, where humanity fell and sinned, God said that he would ultimately crush the serpent's head, and that's what Jesus does. In his death, he crushes the power of Satan. In his resurrection, he defeats sin and death and evil, and Satan. God calls us to receive that gift. And if you've never received that gift, I would urge you to do that today. If you're not, don't consider yourself a believer in Christ. Here's some amazing good news to you I want to share with you. We tend to think, I need to be good to be accepted by God. That's what people tend to think. So when we're talking about a subject like this, it might go like this. I need to be generous enough for God to accept me. I need to give to the poor, which is a good thing to do. Um, I need to not be stingy and selfish. I need to give my time to others. I need to volunteer, okay? I need to volunteer in some charitable kind of uh, opportunity. And if I am good enough, if I do enough charity, giving, selflessness, if I do enough, then God will accept me. That's not the message of Christianity. The message of Christianity is you could never be perfect. 
we have all sinned and our sin separates us from God. You can never be right with God based on what you do. You are right with God based on what he does and you receive as a gift. You will never be generous enough to be accepted by God. He's the generous one that came and generously served you, died for you, gave his life for you, and now calls you to turn from your sin and to receive from him. Not only turn from your sin, but also to turn from your good works. If you think that you are doing enough good works to to be acceptable to God, you've got to turn from that. You've got to turn not just from your sins, but you've got to turn from trying to make yourself right with God and say, God, it is your generosity. I am, I am putting all of my hope on your generosity of what you have done for me, of your grace. I want to receive the gift of new life in Christ and believe in him alone. And you can do that today, right now. You can turn in your heart, in your mind, and, and say, to, say to the Lord, I am sinful and I have opposed you and forgive me. And I'm receiving your generous gift in Christ. I'm turning from my old life, and I want to turn and receive a new life. And I want you to change my heart from the inside, and God will, God will do that. Well, the end of the story is that there is a new heaven and new earth. That hasn't happened yet. That's coming. And uh, in Revelation 21, it tells us, Uh, about a new heaven and a new earth, that when everything is wrapped up, the end of God's generous purposes is to place us in a new heaven, a recreated earth, and to experience his generosity face-to-face forever. And he describes it simply as, in Revelation 21, um, it's so amazing that he has to use kind of pictures, metaphors, to describe what it'll be like. But he does say the dwelling place of God will be with humanity. The dwelling place of God will be with us. God will dwell with us forever. And the way it's described is this, that everything that has caused death and destruction will be done away with. This is what Revelation 21.4 says, God will wipe every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The generosity story ends with God removing every pain, every sorrow, everything that we have done that has brought destruction to ourselves, that has brought destruction to other people, that has brought destruction to God's creation. Everything that we have done or thought or intended, or every good we have failed to do, all of that will be removed, and we will experience the perfection of God. It's the story of generosity from creation to covenant to incarnation to cross and resurrection to the future new heaven and the new earth. It's the story of generosity, and God doesn't tell us, just go be generous. I think God says, look to me, the generous one. That's where we start. Oftentimes when we think about generosity, especially financial generosity, we tend to start with us. We tend to start with, I need to get on a budget. I need to get out of debt. I need to be a good steward. I need to find a bargain. I need to save. I need to give. I need to plan for retirement. I need to help those in need. And it just we start with all these things. Everything I just listed is good. None of that is bad. It's just not where we start. We start with viewing God, being gripped with God as the generous one who has lavished generosity through creation, through his covenant with us, and through ultimately the death and resurrection 
of Christ. Last night, I just, I don't even know why I landed on it, but I went back and read the story of Zacchaeus. And I think the story of Zacchaeus is a model for uh, how God wants to work in every heart and every life. Now, I grew up in Sunday school. Zacchaeus is one of the all-time great felt board stories. But what I remember about learning by Zacchaeus, and this is my fault. I doesn't reflect on the Sunday school teachers I had, which were faithful. But all I remember is Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see or something like that. And really, Zacchaeus' stature is not the point of the story. That's what I learned, but uh, it's not the point of the story. Zacchaeus is a bad man. He's a tax collector. He's greedy. He's selfish. They're notoriously dishonest. They, uh, they're, they're Jews who collect money for the Roman government, so they're traitors to their people. They have power to uh, ex- uh, um, extort people to shake them down for money. So when it says tax collector, it doesn't mean somebody who works the IRS. It means a criminal, someone who's largely, uh, typically criminal in their activity. And uh, it says that he heard Jesus was coming to town, and he can't see. He's a, he's a smaller stature, so he climbs up in a tree. But what happens is he finds out Jesus is seeking him. And as he's looking in the tree and a crowd of people are coming by, Jesus calls him out. We don't know how he knows him. We don't know. He just says, Zacchaeus come down and he uses the verb, this verb of I must come to your house. It's like, this is my mission. This is why I'm here. So did someone tell him about Zacchaeus or probably he is God. So probably supernaturally he knew who he was. But so he says to this bad guy, I must be with you. I must come to you. Eating, joining someone in their home was a sign of friendship, intimacy, fellowship. I must come and treat you like someone that is valuable, that is loved. I need to be with you. I'm coming to your house. Come on down, right? You don't look at me from a tree. I'm coming to your living room. I'm sitting at your table. I'm initiating relationship. I'm coming to you a bad person. This is generosity. This is grace. This is love. And when he gets there, there's something of a party, and we don't know everything that happened in the house. But Zacchaeus is turned upside down, and he says, I'm giving away half of everything I own. I'm just giving everything away. And I am... um, And I'm going to pay back multiple times everything I took from people. I'm not just going to do the law and and do restitution or restore them. I'm going to give them way more. And then Jesus says this, today salvation has come to this house. And the order of things is so important. That's the whole, the whole point of it is the order of things. That a bad guy's in a tree and Jesus comes to him and says, I want to be with you. I want relationship with you. I want fellowship with you. I love you. And they go to the house and they have some kind of conversation. The guy says, this is amazing. I'm giving away my stuff. Why? Because of the generosity of God to love him, to care for him, to reach him in his darkness. It was the grace of God that chased him down, that changed his heart, that says, who needs money and things? He didn't say, I'm going to stop being greedy so God will love me and accept me. He said, God came looking for me. God changed me. God welcomed me. God was generous with me. He overlooked all the religious people and he came to my house. How could I not give everything for this God? That's the picture. When we encounter the generous God, when we trace the storyline of the Bible as the story of generosity, we say, oh God, change my heart. Help me to see you so that all that I have is leveraged for your glory and the good of others. It's that change of heart. It's that grace motivation. It's that new heart 
that God wants us to have. Only when we are trained to see his generosity and to personally experience his generosity and recognize it will we be changed by his generosity and live a life characterized by generosity, giving our lives away, giving our time, giving our attention, giving our abilities, giving our gifts, giving our money, giving all that we can give for the good of glory of God and the good of others. Here's the last thing about generosity that is in the Zacchaeus story that's in every example that I shared with you today in the Bible. And that is generosity is always tangible. It's never just like a sentimental thought. You never hear somebody say, she's the most generous person I've ever met. Really? Well, how's that? She just thinks generous thoughts. Of course. Like, what are you talking about? Of course not. Generosity is giving your time. It's the time in your schedule you gave up for somebody else. It's the skill you have to go help someone fix something in their home. It's the check you wrote to fund someone who's in need that you gave to the church or that you gave to missions or that you gave to a poor person uh, that, that had a financial need. It's the stuff that tangibly, it's the listening, patient ears, sitting with someone who's brokenhearted and putting their interest above your own. That's generosity. And that's tangible. That's not he had a generous thought. That's he gave his time and listened to me and prayed for me. He gave me money. He invited, he opened his house for me to stay. That's generosity. And thankfully, God gives us a tangible reminder of his generosity. And we're going to receive that and celebrate that right now. It's the tangible reminder that we receive in communion. God doesn't just say, I love you. He doesn't just write in the sky, I love you. He, he sends his own son, makes the greatest sacrifice to give to those who could never rescue themselves. He rescues us. And so when we gather in our worship on a regular basis, we want to remember that is tangible and that is costly. It's not mere sentiment. And the bread and the cup remind us that the body of Jesus was scourged, was broken, was beaten for us, that we could be reconciled with God and reconciled with one another. And his blood was shed so that our sins could be forgiven and we could receive eternal life. If there's any tangible expression that we experience today of the generosity of God, it's the bread and the cup, which reminds us that the greatest gift, the greatest sacrifice, the greatest love is represented in his death, burial, and resurrection. So if the ushers would come, uh, we are going, if you'd stand together, we're going to receive the Lord's Supper as we close. If you're a Christian, please celebrate the generosity of God afresh by taking these. If you're not a Christian, We'd ask that you just let it go on past because this won't be meaningful to you. Uh, But come talk to us. We'd love to explain to you the message of Christ so that you could know and believe in him. So if uh, guys and gals, if y'all would pass those down the aisles, ushers, um, just take them. They're double cupped. The bottom cup has bread. The top cup is, um, is the juice. And we'll receive it together in just a moment. And uh, while it's being passed out, let's sing. Come now, Every blessing to my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious song sung by flaming tongues. 
generosity friends unlike any other Christ's body broken for us the undeserving and his blood shed for us we want to give thanks to him for that Paul writes that this is a time to give thanks in first Corinthians I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body for you do this in remembrance of me And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So we're remembering, we're celebrating, we're communing, we're experiencing afresh by grace the the generosity of God to us today. And um, so there's many ways to look at communion, but maybe this is a new way for you today that it is the definitive statement that God is abundant and God is generous. God came loving me. God came seeking me. So let's pray and then we will receive this together. Lord, we thank you for your body broken for us. Lord, we're not praying this prayer. We're not here worshiping. We're not right with you because of something we've done, but because of what you've done for us. So thank you for reconciling us to yourself and to one another through your broken body. Thank you for your bloodshed, Lord. We know that there's no uh, forgiveness of sin ultimately without the shedding of blood, that, that there must be a, that you're a just God and there must be justice paid for sin. And we thank you that you paid that justice price for us by shedding your blood. Lord, how unworthy are we of that? And yet you've been generous. You came looking for us. We are, we're all Zacchaeus. We're the with a bad person hiding out in a tree just to get a glimpse and you come rushing towards us in love and mercy, invading our homes with compassion and care and relationship. So thank you, Lord, for your body broken and your bloodshed. Thank you for pursuing us. 
Thank you for calling us your own. Thank you for adopting us as your children, making us part of your family. And we receive this today, and we just remember the generous God. Thank you. Amen. Let's receive the bread together. Let's receive the cup together. Thank you, Lord, for the forgiveness of our sins. You can pass your cups to the end aisle and the ushers will pick them up. Oh, that day when free from sin, I shall see that lovely face full of radiant blood washed linen. How I'll sing thy sovereign grace. Come, my Lord, no longer tarry. Bring thy promises to pass. For I know that thou will keep me till I'm home with thee at last. Come, my Lord, come, my Lord, no longer tarry. Bring thy promises to pass. For I know that thou will keep me till I'm home with thee at I love that last verse because it's the promise that God will keep us. And that is a really good promise. God doesn't just give us new life. Uh, God doesn't just forgive our sins one time. But God keeps us till the very end. I don't know about you, but I need that promise throughout the week because I feel like I'm losing my grip on him frequently. And I need to remember he's been generous and he's keeping me. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.